1813, the year Pride and Prejudice was published, the year Charles Lanyon was born, the year the London Philharmonic was founded, and the year that David Livingstone was born. Can I welcome a well-aged David Livingstone? Well, thank you for your patience and for waiting till we got the technology sorted out. It's kind of grim thing, technology. Yes. <laughs> Thanks to Jonathan for trying to sort it online. Steve standing praying. Uh, Chris running about, and we've, 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 got it, we've got it solved. Okay, right, well, truth's in trouble. As the 21st century bites deeper and deeper into all our lives, truth is under an enormous threat, I think, from two different directions. At least that's the way I see it. Let me explain. On the one hand, there are many people who think that there's really no such thing as truth at all. That it's only your truth as opposed to my truth. There's no truth with a capital T. There's only truth from a point of view. That's one side. On the other hand, there are people who are captivated by by what I would describe as an overly restricted view of truth, an excessively narrow conception of what should be allowed to pass as the truth. For many in in this camp, truth is more or less only those things that could be measured or subjected to scientific verification or produced maybe in a laboratory. You could put it this way, For these people, if it can't be counted, it doesn't count. To them, the only truth is scientific truth. Now, this is a a serious state of affairs, I think. And not least is it serious for Christians, because Christians have high stakes in what you might call the truth business. We follow one who claimed to be the truth, We're the people of a book which professes to declare the truth. We belong to a faith which says that it's the truth that sets us free. So, yes indeed, we've high investments in the very idea of truth. We're stakeholders in truth enterprises. And so to have truth comprehensively sabotaged on the one hand, or condescendingly narrowed down on the other hand, is, I think, disturbing. It's troubling. At least it should be disturbing, I think, and it should be troubling. Because if we're indifferent to the fortunes of truth, I think we're indifferent to the fate of our own faith. If the idea of truth is just a myth, a hopeless fabrication, a a social invention, a piece of of make-believe, an an attempt to exercise power, if it's it's just that, then we are indeed marooned in a sea of ambiguity and ambivalence. We're lost in a fog of confusion and speculation. On the other hand, if truth is only what you can compute or calculate, if it's only what can be measured and metered, then we live in a world of, of cold mechanism evacuated of all warmth and worth and meaning. A world that's, that's hollowed out, thinned down, and left barren. So I want to spend a little time 
just a while, initially reflecting with you on how we've come to find ourselves in this troubling situation. How we've come to what I think of as these very, very diminished or indifferent views about the nature of truth. So, so let me mention, in a kind of historical way, two forces that I think have impoverished our understanding of truth in the modern world. I'm going to call these the story of two reductions, uh, two trajectories that have delivered us this devalued view of truth, this reduced, emaciated, shrunken conception of what the truth really is. So, so I'm going to begin with a tendency that we've inherited way back from the 18th century, from the period of the, of the Enlightenment. And for want of a better term, I think we could call this scientific rationalism. Now, that story, this side of the story goes, goes roughly something like this. The rise of modern science three or four hundred years ago provided a powerful new tool to understand the natural world and also to manipulate it. Great thinkers like, like Galileo and, and Kepler and, and Isaac Newton demonstrated the stunning power of this new way of interrogating nature. This was the birth of modern science, the birth of, of the scientific method. And, and it was given really potent expression, I think, in the words of the, of the, in the work of the great philosopher and chancellor and statesman, Francis Bacon. Bacon de developed the idea that what was crucial to truth and to getting reliable knowledge was to get knowledge that was solid, that was secure, that was free from the subjective, was to follow the right set of procedures. Just follow the right method. And that method was first-hand observation. That's the only way that truth and true knowledge could be gained. What was needed was, he thought, liberation from, and we've just had one of them tonight, old texts. What he wanted was liberation from the authority of ancient writers, from simply contemplation. First-hand direct experience should replace all that old learning. Speculation had to give way to practicality. Uh, meditation had to surrender to observation. And the result then would be knowledge that was sure and certain truth about the world. And in fact, many thought that there was only really one language that could express all that. The language of mathematics. The language of number. Uh, the great, great astronomer, Galileo, famously put it, the book of nature is written in the language of mathematics. Now this idea, in fact, from Galileo right back in, I think about 1618 writing this, has persisted right up to our own day. Uh, take, for example, uh, that best-selling book, A Brief History of Time, by the renowned Cambridge physicist Stephen Hawking. Hawking announces in this book that a unified theory combining the fundamental forces of nature would explain the entire meaning of the universe. He said if we could grasp these initial forces, we would know what he said he described as we would know the mind of God. But he explains that in the end, that theory would simply be just a set of rules and equations. The mind of God would just be a mathematical formula.
Now, during the 18th century, this impulse cut really deeply into human thought. And in many ways, I think this entire episode in our own history finds perfect expression in the title of a famous book by Thomas Paine, The Age of Reason. His confidence in reason knew no limits. We have it in our power to begin the world over again, he announced. For Paine, and it was interesting that Steve was mentioning a little bit of this last night, the patron saint of knowledge, I think, was the Apostle Thomas, doubting Thomas. Listen to what Paine says. Thomas did not believe the resurrection and would not believe it without having ocular, for the eye, and manual of the hand, demonstration himself. So neither will I, unless he could see it and touch it, like doubting Thomas, he wouldn't believe. So the idea spread that really there are only two kinds of claims that could be true. Things that you could see firsthand, call that the Thomas Principle, and secondly, things that were in keeping with mathematical proofs, call that the Hawking impulse. Now soon, all sorts of human endeavors were brought under this form of rationality. Think of our language. Words like efficiency, measurement, mechanism, evidence. These started to govern the conversation about truth. And this, I think, was a trimmed-down understanding of truth and it began to issue in an, in an entirely impoverished view of human life. I'll come back to that. Take, for example, architecture. In the early 20th century, this whole movement reached its greatest height. The famous French architect Le Corbusier, for example, he went on to define the home or the house as just a machine for living in. Mechanism is dominating even social life. The artistic, the aesthetic, the beautiful, the ornamental, all these are jettisoned in favor of a mechanical conception of all of human living. Since then, of course, and I'll get to this in a minute, there have been many who have revolted against this first view of, of truth. But, you know, it still has its champions, not least in some of the new atheists, like Dan Dennett and Richard Dawkins. Dennett, for example, thinks that Darwin's theory of natural selection can explain, well, everything. He, absolutely everything. It explains not just population change or, or species transformation or whatever. No, he describes it as a universal acid that erodes its way through absolutely everything about us and provides an explanation for everything, whether it's the existence of tonsils, or why we love our children, what we believe about morality, why we don't eat our grandmothers, why we love beautiful things. Everything is explained on one scientific principle, evolutionary adaptation. To him, there's a functional explanation for everything, about our lives. Terry Eagleton has got a lovely thing to say about Dennett in one of his books, and he, and he puts it this way, about Dennett's obsession with this first reduction. He says that to Dennett, 
Dennett thinks that ballet is only a botched way of running for a bus. <laughs> so here's my first reduction. Truth is only what science or scientific scrutiny can deliver. Only what passes experiment or verification, everything else doesn't count. Now the second reduction is very different indeed, and it afflicts modernity even more, I believe. It doesn't so much truncate truth as say that there's no such thing as truth at all. This mood often goes now under the term postmodernism, And I think this is really inclined to, to capture the notion that we've gone beyond the modern, the mere modern, into a post-modernity that we now inhabit. Now, I have to say this is complex uh, terrain, and, I, and I'll try to be as simple about this as I can, but, but I think that there are two routes into this new postmodern mood that I guess we've been living with for a quarter of a century. The first one of these is, is I think, some social changes that resulted in a very deep dissatisfaction with the experiences of living in a world of just mechanism. Do you remember a minute or two ago I mentioned, I mentioned that architect, uh, Le Corbusier? Now, it's quite interesting in the connection with Le Corbusier, I've, I've heard this said, and, and you, might re, you might remark on the remarkable precision of this, this sentence. Postmodernism was born at 32 minutes past three on the 15th of July, 1972. Why? Well, that day the Pruitt Ego Urban, Urban Housing Project, and here's a picture of it, which was a prize-winning Le Corbusier machine for living in, underwent something drastic in St. Louis, the United States. It was dynamited by its occupants. The occupants dynamited it because it was an uninhabitable environment. The low-income people that it housed revolted against its cold, instrumental rationality, its soulless functionalism, its impersonality, its sense of faceless anonymity, its mechanical standardization of human life. In this scientific machine for living in, Life was simply unlivable. So I think that dramatic event can be seen as emblematic of what's come to be called the post-modern condition. The old certainties have gone. The confidence of the modernists have evaporated. Their confidence that they could get to the truth has gone. But instead of mechanical certainty... What's left is a world of uncertainty, ambiguity, ambivalence. But according to the postmodernists, this isn't to be regretted. It's to be embraced. Sure, something's been lost, but we're told that we can lose truth without having any grief. So in place of the old assurances and convictions, now people want to celebrate lightheartedness capriciousness, a lack of seriousness. All that's left in the world, they say, is, is playfulness, 
One famous philosophical advocate, Richard Rory, put it this way. A sense of play is the highest possibility for human life. Now I think that these forces have delivered a generation that I would like to describe as the the me, the me generation. What's right for me is all that matters. We just have to be true to ourselves to get in touch with our own deepest feelings. And so we've now had two generations of people bred for the short attention span. A yuppie culture characterized by too much money without moral moorings. A global shopping center in which high consumption capitalism puts a premium on nothing but surface glamour. What's added enormously to this mood is something else. In contrast to that confidence in scientific truth, there's this reassertion that there's only truth as you see it, truth as I see it, truth as somebody else sees it, truth as opinion. There's no truth at all, only standpoints. And that, I think, has captivated the modern world. Now, there's some good things about this. For example, I think that we have for far too long only listened to history from the side of the winners. We have have evacuated from history the marginalized, uh, those who were the victims of imperialism, often women, those who weren't particularly visible on on the historical landscape to historians' eyes. These stories are being recovered, and I think that that's quite a good thing. But this whole mood has bred a suspicion about those who, 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 when they claim to tell the truth about something, people think that what they're doing is really trying to exercise power over somebody else. That really is a veiled effort to dominate others and to accrue power to themselves. And that's what I call the second of my two reductions. Often people think that a person with a point of view is only out to exercise power. The view now is there are no eternal narratives, only provincial standpoints. There are no facts, only fabrications. Nothing is sure. Everything is suspect. Nothing is solid. Everything is shifting. So, I think these are troubling times for truth. And it's into the middle of this confusion that we hear an announcement. And it should be an announcement that shocks. One that astonishes. One that even alarms. Jesus says, I am the truth. Now I wanted to note first of all about this declaration. It's not a scientific proposition for hearers to test or to measure, or to meter, or to calculate. It's not a hypothesis. It's a statement. It's a declaration. I want you to notice, too, that it's not tentative in any one way. It's not presented as just my opinion, or a point of view, or an aspiration. I mean, Jesus doesn't say, I I, I think I might have an insight here. Or, Or he doesn't say, uh, you know, like, um, I have a sense that I might perhaps maybe be on to something novel. No, it's a forthright pronouncement. I am 
the truth. Amazing. And it's heard in different ways. Some will immediately find it arrogant, even alarming. Some might even think it's immoral or at best misguided, a will to power. Some others might even judge it to be offensive or outrageous. Christians, of course, are likely to find it enormously comforting and a cause for great celebration. But but even here, I wonder sometimes, among his followers, might some wonder if it's maybe not just a wee bit too narrow or exclusive. Now let's pause for a moment and look at the context. I got Francis to read this. Recall that I said that we live in a troubling time for people who are interested in the truth. Now note that the very first verse of that chapter 14 began, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Jesus says this in the upper room on the night in which he was betrayed. He told his disciples, he's just told them that he's leaving, and they don't know what's happening. They're perplexed. They're faltering. They're troubled. Good old doubting Thomas blurts it out in verse 5. Isn't it wonderful? Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Now that's the context for this stunning declaration. That's the context for Jesus' pronouncement. In troubling times, in times that it literally means make us shudder, In times when the certainties seem to have gone, when we're lost in a fog of confusion and bewilderment, Jesus says, I'm the truth. Now let me repeat. This is simply a statement. It's simply an assertion. It's simply a pronouncement. It's not an argument. Jesus does not argue a case here. He doesn't give even evidence for his claim. He just proclaims it. He's not adopting the rationalist position here for a minute. Now, to be sure, sometimes Jesus does tell people to come and look at the evidence, to come and touch and taste and see. But here it's different. Here he's announcing something that is a fundamental truth, one that doesn't rest on some more basic foundations, one that is a foundation itself, one that is just a bare, brute reality. He is the truth. Now, I think there's something of critical significance here, and I hope you do too. You see, in the Bible, you never find an argument for the existence of God at all. God is never the conclusion of an argument in the Scriptures. He's not the outcome of some inferences and logic. You never hear in Scripture anything like this. Proposition 1. The world looks like it's designed. Proposition two, everything that's designed must have a designer. Conclusion, the world must have a designer. Inference, I think. The great designer is God. No, Scripture never goes that way. God's never the conclusion of an argument. He's the premise. He's the great presupposition. He's where we start from, not where we end in our arguments. He's the beginning of the argument, not his conclusion. He's the condition for the very possibility of even thinking at all. 
The Bible just presumes that he is there. Now, it's the same, I think, with Jesus' proclamation, I am the truth. If you want to find where truth is, you don't end up with a conclusion getting to Jesus. You take Jesus as a starting point for where you find truth. Here's where we should begin to think about truth. If you want to find out anything about truth, begin your journey here. Here's where we start from. Now, of course, you're free to reject it. You're free to sneer at it. You're free to shun it. You're free free to just plain well ignore it. There's no compulsion. But there's an invitation. Come, I think Jesus is saying, and stand on this place and let's view truth from where he is. Now what's more, if, 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 the, if the Eastern Orthodox theologian David Hart is, is, is right, he puts it this way. If indeed God became a man, then truth with a capital T condescended to become a truth in our world. Think of it this way. When, G, when God became flesh in Jesus, truth literally took place. It took place in a definite location at a specific point in time in particular circumstances. Now this means that whatever Christians mean when we speak about truth, it's not about abstract theorems or syllogistic reasoning or the verification of facts or anything of that sort. The Christian faith takes the incarnate Christ as the starting point of what the very idea of truth must mean. I am the truth. So I want to turn now to the more difficult part of this this talk as I try to share with you something about what the Christian tradition and the Bible has to say about truth and how different it is from the two conceptions that I've been dealing with in the first half of this talk. A radical alternative to the Thomas principle and to the Hawking impulse. And equally an alternative to the postmodern fog particularly in its more indulgent forms. Now, if my analysis is in the right neighborhood, and this is up for grabs, I think we should be able to see something of how the Christian faith provides a very different way to think about truth, and I believe a much richer way, and one that we desperately need in our own troubled times. Now, now my thinking on this is, is pretty sketchy. I really only started to think about it when Steve asked me to do this. It worried me no end. But here goes. I invite you to explore it with me and go further. What I want to do is explore with you four verbs that seem to me to link with truth in life-changing ways. And I'm going to begin with the more obvious and the familiar and then move into what may be less traveled terrain. Now it's pretty clear that knowing the truth is of fundamental importance to the Christian. Paul tells Timothy that God wants, and I quote, all people to come to a knowledge of the truth. So really, I make no apology for saying that there is a fundamental intellectual component in engaging with the truth in Christianity. There is intellectual content to our faith. It's not just about woozy feelings or mere sentimentality. It's not just about a passion for the supernatural or the miraculous or the spiritually dramatic. Now, this is pretty basic, and surely in Fitzroy, I don't really need to pursue it very much. 
All I will say is that I do think that we ignore the cognitive, the intellectual dimensions of, of our faith at our peril. Frankly, you've only to read about the first six verses from Paul's epistle to the Romans, and you'll see exactly what I mean. You've got to be thinking hard. Really? Really, really? He's serious about knowing the truth. Take that famous speech of his to the Athenians. When Paul arrived in Athens, he was distressed to see the flourishing of what the Acts of the Apostles calls idolatry. And so he began to engage in a dialogue with the philosophers. Recall the story of what happened at Mars Hill. As I walked around, Paul says, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. Paul saw it as his task to make true, the true God known, to inform his hearers about the truth of the Christian God and his manifestation in the person of Jesus. His aim was to make the unknown known, to make clear the confused, to make comprehensible the convoluted. He desperately wanted his hearers to know the truth. So knowing the truth is of major importance in the Christian faith. As I said, I don't need to say much more about it. But I do sometimes wonder if we're as passionate about that as we should be. Now, I guess many of us here tonight are Christians in the Reformed tradition, and we've long considered ourselves to be people of the book, people who are grounded in intimate knowledge of Scripture. So, suppose somebody were to say to you, Hey, you go to Fitzroy. What's the main thrust of the second letter to the Thessalonians? Or suppose they were to say, in what key ways does the epistle to the Hebrews differ from, say, the book of James? How would you do? Suppose somebody were to say to me, hey, what's the main tension between the priestly literature of the Old Testament and the prophetic stories? Or what's the most remarkable thing that's absent from the book of Esther? Or in what way does Hosea contradict Second Kings? How would I do? How would you do, Steve? I suggest we all need to know more, a lot more, than we do about the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. And now we've got the simple bit over. Knowing the truth is only the very, very beginning, the lowest level of what's important here. Because in this remarkable claim that Jesus makes, he says that he is the truth. He's speaking about being the truth. He incarnates the truth. He embodies it. Recall the beginning of John's Gospel. The passage we read every carol, at every carol service. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Here is the Word in flesh. Here truth takes living form. We're told, of course, that in times past, God had spoken through the prophets. We learn, too, that God had spoken in creation. But these weren't enough. To give us the final truth about himself, he didn't send some words. He didn't send a PhD thesis. Thank goodness a text message either didn't come. 
He didn't scribble a blog. When God wants to communicate his definitive message to earthlings in a language that we'll understand, that language is a body. You could put it this way. Jesus is God's speech. It is in Jesus that the truth of God finds its final expression, its fullest disclosure, its most eloquent enunciation. God finds his voice in Jesus. Think of it this way. The incarnation is God's great act of translation. Now, now Christians, of course, have for generations tried to translate the scriptures into indigenous languages. And and if you talk to a translator, you'll know what a difficult, difficult job uh, that is. But God's already been here. When God in Christ became human, divinity was translated into humanity. Christ is God's translated speech. Now, I think there's something awfully sobering for the followers of Jesus Christ here. We have to incarnate the truth as well. We have to find ways to be the truth, not just know it, converse about it, deliberate about it. How do we think of that? What does that really mean? Think of it this way. When knowledge of any kind gets incarnated, it moves. For example, it moves from the lecture theater out into the operating table if you're a doctor. It moves from the self-assembly instruction book to the finished chest of drawers. Many of you have had difficulty incarnating that one. It moves from theology to discipleship. You know, it's a bit like the it's a bit like the difference between botany and gardening. Botany is the science of plants, instructs us on its structure, the structure of plants, their anatomy, their taxonomy, their natural history, and so on. But gardening is the craft of tending to plants. It brings botanical knowledge to incarnation, to practical practical gardening. It incarnates the knowledge. Now, I think this has, this is a view of of truth with astonishingly broad implications for our own modern world. Suppose we had to incarnate our knowledge claims before any of us foisted them on other people. What difference would it have made if Nazi medical scientists like Joseph Mengele had been required to try out their experiments on their own bodies before they carried them out on their victims? What if they'd been made to incarnate to embody their own procedures? What difference would it have made if postmodern architects had been made to live in the soulless houses that they built for at least two years before they put them on the market? What difference would it have made if rogue traders had been required to invest their own savings, their own futures, their own endowments in every single deal they brokered? What difference would it make in this area if landlords had to live for a year in the properties that they rent to students or indeed the ones they rent to migrant workers? And then I think in this area, what difference would it make if Christians incarnated our theology? every day. There's a remarkable observation in the first epistle of John. 
And you know, the old authorized version sometimes gets things pretty well, the King James. The King James puts this rather interestingly, I think. It's in chapter 1, verse 6, and it says this. If we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. That's an intriguing way of putting it. Doing the truth. Truth here is not just something that you know, but it's something that you do. 13th of March, 1964. A young woman parks her car in the Kew Gardens neighborhood of New York City. It's late, well after midnight. As she makes her way from the parking lot towards her apartment in Austin Street, she's accosted by a man called Winston Mosley, an altogether nasty character who's been cruising the neighborhood looking for a target. Early that Friday morning, Catherine Genovese becomes his latest victim. He stalked her through the streets and twice buried a knife blade deep into her back. She screams for help. Lights flicker in her, in her apartment building and one man shouts out, Leave that girl alone. Mosley runs off. Catherine staggers towards the door. But from a safe distance, Mosley kept his eye on her. And a few minutes later, when nobody showed up, he returned to the scene and found her, viciously stabbed her again and again and again. Later it was reported that 38 residents had witnessed this vicious attack. Not one of them lifted a finger to help her. When interviewed, many people said, I didn't want to get involved. No burly New Yorker grabbed a baseball bat and headed out to help. Eventually, one man I've heard went to his 75-year-old neighbor and suggested that she might do something to help. Well, she did. She called the police. But by the time they arrived, Kitty Genovese was already dead. Now, of course, it is true that some elements in this account have recently been challenged by new pieces of research. What really happened might have been a little more complex, but the story that it illustrates is what I'm after with the idea of doing the truth. It's this. People can know the truth, but not do it. People can have knowledge, but not take responsibility for the knowledge that they have. Those who witnessed the fatal assault on Kitty Genovese failed to see that knowledge brings with it ethical duty, ethical obligation. And that's what went so terribly wrong during the Watergate affair in 1972. You recall it. Richard Nixon was forced to resign as President of the United States for his attempted cover-up of the break-in at the Democratic National Committee headquarters in Washington. During the investigations, one witness after another conceded, yes, they knew things were going wrong, but one after another pleaded, I just did what I was told. I just did what I was told. Here were people who had knowledge, but they wouldn't do it. They had knowledge, but they would not take responsibility for it. They knew the truth, 
but they didn't do it. In the Christian vision, when we know something, we are to act on it. Listen to Jesus himself in Matthew 7. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine, what, and knows them, and meditates on them, and sings about them, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. Hearing his words is one thing. Knowing the truth is one thing. Doing it, obeying it, performing it is altogether something else. My final thought. Andrew Wiles is a brilliant Oxford mathematician. Until quite recently, he taught at Princeton University. Now, Wiles became renowned in the mathematical world in 1995 for solving a problem that had confounded mathematicians for three and a half centuries. The story of the problem that would seal Wiles' place in history began in 1637 when a French lawyer with an interest in mathematics, Pierre Fermat was his name, made a deceptively simple mathematical conjecture for which he was supposed to have a proof. You'd be glad to know the details need not concern us. What's vital, though, is that finding a proof for what's known as Fermat's theorem turned out to be really an infernally stubborn problem for 300 years until Wiles cracked it. One thing's for sure, Wiles's exceedingly complex proof couldn't have been the one that Fermat had in mind 300 years ago. It actually took months for Wiles's argument to be scrutinized and checked over and refereed and so on. And I've heard it said that it was so complex that only a mere handful of people in all the world were capable of working through the complexities of Wiles's computational algebra. He wrestled with this problem for seven years in secrecy. He tried various lines of analysis. Sometimes he'd make a small step. Sometimes he'd have to abandon a trail that he'd been following, maybe for months on end. Once, he almost gave up completely. And then in 1995, he finally achieved it and established what's called, wait for it, the modularity theorem for semi-stable elliptic curves. Whatever the dickens that means. A couple of years later, 1997, the BBC Horizon team broadcast a fascinating program about Wiles and his achievement. And now at last I get to where I've been heading over the last couple of minutes. I watched that program. One scene has lived with me. Picture it. Andrew Wise is in his Princeton office and he's talking to the camera. He's describing the fateful moment when the crucial insight arrived. Listen to how he describes it. At the beginning of September, he says, I was sitting at this desk, the language is interesting, when suddenly and totally unexpectedly I had this incredible revelation. His lip begins to quiver. His voice wavers. He tries to speak again to the interviewer, more trembling. He stalls. There are tears in his eyes. He breaks down. Why? 
He later put it this way. It was so indescribably beautiful. It was so simple and elegant. Its beauty overwhelmed him. Now, now listen, folks, in case you've been dreaming for a minute or two, he's not describing here a beautiful woman. He's not describing an incredible work of art. He's not describing an unbelievably moving piece of music. He's talking about, yes, yes, a mathematical proof. Symbols, signs, you know, squiggles on a page. But here's the thing. To him, the truth was beautiful. Above and beyond everything else, its function, its clarity, its power, what gripped him at the deepest level was its beauty. To Wiles, the truth was to be savored, to be delighted in, because it was beautiful. Now, of course, there are truths that aren't beautiful at all. Some are ugly, distressing, foul. Some are painful or shocking. They reveal betrayal or obscenity or atrocity. And, of course, some of the most dreadful of truths can be framed in breathtaking splendor. Nazi officers luxuriated in the glories of Bach's music performed by Jewish prisoners in the concentration camps. Richly colored flowers lavishly populated the Cambodian killing fields. Stunning Afghanistan starry nights witness unspeakable atrocities in Helmand province. In these situations, the awful beauty is more appalling than enriching. But when it comes to God's truth, revealed in his works and in his, in his incarnated word, then it is beautiful in its entirety and in its essence. Now, I've been battling with this over the past week or two, thinking about beauty and truth, as I was thinking about tonight. And I've gained a little insight into this by reading an old sermon by perhaps the greatest theologian America ever produced, Jonathan Edwards. In September 1752, Edwards preached a sermon to the Synod in New York. I found it remarkable. He took as his text, James chapter 2, verse 19, and I'll quote it from the King James Version, which he was using. Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Now, Edwards interrogated this text in astounding detail. Believe me. The sermon is 40 pages of tightly spaced text, and I've timed it. It would last at least three times longer than this talk tonight. But I want to focus on what is at the heart of this argument and on an insight that has wider implications for a society with a a shrunken view of truth. Edwards contends this. It's possible to know God's truth, to see it, to comprehend it, to discourse about it, but, he says, to see no beauty in it. It's possible, he says, to know about God, about his works, about his son, and yet to remain blind to what he calls, in this wonderful 18th century English, to remain blind to the supreme beauty of the divine nature. He says it's possible to remain unaware of the comeliness and the supreme amiableness of God's truth. It's possible, 
to hear these things but to miss their exquisite loveliness. When we do that, we might know the truth, but we never savor it. We never delight in it. We don't cherish it. We don't revel in it because we never discern its beauty. What a contrast that is to the psalmist who is forever declaring his delight in God's truth and savoring his laws day and night. Listen to him. If your law hadn't been my delight, I would have perished. Jeremiah announces, I delight in your decrees. Your words are my joy and my heart's delight. The Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians, love takes no pleasure in other people's sins, but delights in the truth. I think there's something vital here. How much richer our lives would be if we came to see that God's truth is beautiful. If we came to delight more in it, if we could move from thinking about it and even acting it out to relishing it, to loving it, to taking pleasure in it. For in the end, that's what the Christian faith offers the world. It's not a suite of rational arguments intended to force agreement from hearers. It sets forth a story, the story of God's glory revealed in the beauties of creation and in the loveliness of Jesus Christ. Well, I'm done. I began by saying that truth is in trouble in our day. On the one hand, it's choked and curbed, pared down and hemmed in. On the other, it's devalued, mythologized, disparaged, scorned. There's much to trouble us. There is indeed much to make us shudder. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Jesus says, don't be afraid. I am the truth. Thank you, David. Um, Enough there to be going on with for a few years, but David has said that he is open to some questions. So I'm going to go down if there's a handheld mic there that Chris has. And if you have any questions, feel free to ask them now. Hi, that was fabulous, stunning, and I loved it. Um, I don't know that this is a question really, but it just occurred to me in looking at those four points that another way of saying them is that the truth is personal. And I don't mean in that way to diminish it in any way, but, you know, we have cognitive function, we have souls, we have morality. The truth is personal. Would you agree or disagree? Well, what I like about what you're saying, I think, Janet, is that there's a holistic dimension to it. Um, That, uh, you know, it's not as if you can separate off the brain bit from the emotion bit. You can't separate the emotion bit, you know, from the appreciation um, uh, or whatever. Um, So I think think in its fullest way, you know, um, all those dimensions come into our embracing of the truth. What I don't think you want to say, and maybe I've got you wrong, but I think I would say this. Um, I mean, I don't think that this is saying that there are not objective truths out there, that it's all personalist or whatever. I think what I'm saying really here is that we're we're inclined to think of of truth as just, as it were, facts and nothing more. And I'm trying to argue here tonight that a Christian view of truth is not just accepting truth as a set of truths, 
but that you need to move further, you know, to, to make it more um, experiential, existential, um, and that if we, if we only operate with it at the level of the mere fact, we're getting just to the very bottom rung of this, that uh, truth in its fullness in the Christian tradition is far wider than the kind of conceptions we have. And if that's what you're after with your comment, well, then I'm in agreement with you. The, the truth is you let out in your four statements at the end are, are statements I think that Christians can and certainly should buy into. Yeah. But we're a small fraction of the population in the yeah. world, and we have to do battle with both the scientific worldview, which has actually has brought us fantastic benefits, of course, mm-hmm. over, over years, and, and the view that everything is relative. So how do you think there's ways in which we can get more traction uh, with the world at large? Well, good question. Well, I think two things here, I would say. Um, one is, I mean, I remember someone um, uh, saying to me about Christians who wanted to enter an organization and transform it. And they'd enter the org- organization and they wouldn't really transform it at all and they'd give up. And this person said to me, um, that's what they call the all or nothing syndrome. You know, if I'm not going to have a really, really big effect and change it all, I'm not going to change anything. Now, I think that we Christians are a small group. And we're not going to, I think, immediately transform that world out there. But, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do anything. So I think we start within the church. And I think that as individual Christians in our own places of work and so on, we try to articulate and um, instantiate and embody um, some of these uh, principles. I mean, it's, it's an overwhelming task. Uh, but I think we've got to start there. I think secondly, though, and I mean, I tried to show this, maybe not as well as I, as I might have done. I think that if some of these conceptions of truth were seen to be more embodied in our world, then the impoverishment of the other views would be pretty much seen. Um, so if a person is a Christian architect, then you've got to say, what difference is Christianity making? Uh, not to you coming on a Sunday and singing hymns, but I mean to your architecture. Uh, I mean, if you are a Christian planner, would you plan buildings of this sort without taking the human being seriously um, and, and try to have a richer view of uh, what truth is? If you're an investment banker, I mean, um, maybe it would be a good idea to, to recommend people uh, to follow your personal example and how you're investing. Uh, you might feel differently about it. Now, I think if that happened more widely... I don't know, maybe it would catch on a little bit. So we shouldn't adopt the all-or-nothing syndrome. It'll be small. Um, but I think we should start. Um, I think these are powerful, powerful Christian themes that have been squashed because we haven't attended to them, maybe as much as we should have done. Thank you. Um, I lecture for verbs. Um, and I was wondering if you would like to consider a fifth uh, mm-hmm. verb, which would be sharing the truth, mm-hmm. um, knowing and being and doing. <clears throat> and I've forgotten the last one already because I'm nervous standing here. Janet said very personal, and that's very true. But if we, are, if we know, if we're being the truth, if we're doing the truth, is sharing that with other people is vitally important, not just the knowledge bit, but all of the other four. Well, um, first of all, I cut it down to four. I actually I had actually a couple more, and I just don't have time. I didn't have time to do them. I said, "Hey, so, hey, something's got to go here." And, and sharing the truth was actually one of them. Um, and, and you've hit on half of what I would would have thought of. Of course, it's vital that we try to share share the truth. Um, 
I think there are really legitimate questions about how we do that. Um, some ways that you can share the truth um, can be pretty much the exercise of a will to power and, and can be pretty, pretty arrogant and, and so on. So there is an issue about, about sharing it. But there's another element about the sharing of, of truth by which I really was, would be trying to get at. Uh, truth is always a social thing. Um, the vast bulk of things that I know, and honestly, the vast bulk of things that you know, you know them because you, you're trusting somebody who told you them. Um, I've never been in Australia, but I believe it's there. Why? Because I've been a doubting Thomas and I've witnessed it firsthand, if I followed the Thomas principle, I'd say, no, it doesn't exist because people told me. I, I mean, I, I believe that the earth revolves around the sun, um, not that the sun revolves around the earth because people like Tom Miller told me. I couldn't do the mathematics. The vast bulk of things that we know, we know socially. So there's another element to sharing the truth, that truth cannot be acquired without it being shared. It's just part of what truth is. And this notion that you can be an individual and just find out the truth solely by yourself, for yourself, by your own um, experimentation and, and so on is a profoundly misguided view of truth the way I see it. And trust is at the heart of the truth of the Christian faith. It's a massive exercise in trust. Yeah, isn't it? it is called the Christian faith, isn't it? <laughs> for that very reason. So yes, and so you would have given me 0.5a, and then I had 0.5b, David. <laughs> oh, here's the tough one now. Right, this is following on from David about sharing the truth. You, um, Steve did dealt with all that last night. <laughs> you made the point that this is an assertion that yeah. Jesus said, I am the truth, and yeah. that's where we start. Yeah. Now, I'm thinking of the implications of this for evangelism. Yeah. So I want to tell somebody the truth as I believe it mm -hmm. to be from the Bible. But I tell this to someone, and they think this is nonsense. So we're in parallel lines. Yeah. You know, we're traveling along, but we're never going to converge. Mm -hmm. So is there no place for trying to convince someone of the truth you know, that there is a God. Is there no room for that in evangelism? Do we simply assert and, and hope that God will step in? I mean, I don't know. I, I always kind of thought there was a room for apologetics. Well, let's not get Yeah, okay. Well, uh, I've said two things about that. Um, uh, first of all, I, I'm not saying that... Um, uh, you can't try to have persuasive arguments. I'm saying that at the end of the day, I don't think there are going to be any that are absolutely foolproof. I think if a person wants to take a skeptical position, um, you're not going to come up with any knockdown argument that's going to win the day here. Um, that doesn't mean that you can't engage in a dialogue. And I think there are two ways to engage in a dialogue. One is to, for the sake of the argument, for you to adopt the position of the unbeliever and try to show some of the incoherences and difficulties in adopting their position. And I think that you invite them to see it from your perspective in a conversation and to try to look at it from if they're standing where you're standing. And you just hope that in that dialogue that there'll be some things on either side that will shed some light. But I don't think that there's going to be any foolproof knockdown argument that's worth its salt that really is going to be a proof for the existence of God that is going to be compelling to just everybody who hears it. 
Now, the second route into this is, I think, um, instantiating some of these ways of being the truth so that a person will not just have to be cognitively convinced, but will see differences, will see the way in which that conception of truth makes a richer life, makes a life that is more coherent, that, that um, gives explanations to things that that person might not have. But I don't think these are ever going to be straightforward philosophical arguments that are going to compel people um, into belief. And I think in this case, I don't think I can come up with a set of arguments for why Jesus is saying I'm the truth, because he doesn't give them. He declares them. And therefore, evangelism becomes much more dialogical, much more inviting other people to see it from your point of view, even as you say, I'll try and see it from your viewpoint. I'm sure you want to come back on that. Oh, Steve Dawes, oh dear. No, um, I think it was a navigator who once talked about doing evangelistic Bible studies and he had this uh, parallel line awkward character in the Bible study who yeah. was breaking up the Bible study. So we took him into a one-to-one. Yeah. And he said, we're not here to argue whether what I'm saying is right or not. We're here to see whether you can understand what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, and so when they went through John's gospel, I think, and they said in the beginning, was, well, I don't know whether any, no, no, no. Do you understand what it's saying? Yeah. Not whether you believe it or not. And yeah. then he would have said, and this is the 12th player, I guess, in the team, that our job is to reveal it and share it to the point where the Holy Spirit, yeah. grace, Absolutely. can bring that kind of faith. Is, is that one of those ways that, again, we're not coming across argumentatively necessarily? I've been in many arguments about faith. I was probably no, one too. to faith by argument. But so there's, there's something of that that I think we have to at least... Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, good, thanks for the question, Steve, because while you've been talking, it's given me a chance to think of something else I should have said. I mean, I think another element is, is this, and there's a real apologetic element uh, here, a defense of the faith. It's often thought that Christian belief is irrational. It's often thought that, it, that, um, that there are no reasons in it at all. Of course there are reasons. I think a lot of the task is also to show that um, uh, Christian faith is not unreasonable, that it is a rational position to adopt. That's not saying that you're going to persuade someone of the truth of it, but I think that you can show that it is not an unreasonable um, uh, set of propositions to believe or indeed an unreasonable set of, of, of claims to have. But ultimately, those are only going to be cognitive claims. Christianity is fundamentally about a relationship. I, uh, just, just a thought, but I find like a great sense of liberation in knowing that I can't do everything and that I won't know everything. Yeah. And in that, it allows me to do something. Yeah. And I'm just thinking of, can we say the truth as mystery? Because mm-hmm. we might not fully always know the truth. We're always progressing towards finding out more about it. And is that something that might be valid, the truth as mystery. Yeah, um, I, I think it is. Um, I think that there are a set of words that um, you know, I, I didn't use tonight because they can be easily misunderstood. Um, I think mystery is actually one of them. Uh, another one uh, that I might have thought of using tonight was uh, something about the authority of what Jesus says. And part of the reason is, is this. Um, when people hear the word authority... When I speak the word authority, people hear authoritarian. And when people hear the word mystery, often, or say the word mystery, persons sort of tends to think mysticism or mystification. So I think they have to be used sort of quite carefully. 
I think there's profound mystery in the Christian faith. I think the, the whole thing hinges on incarnation, which nobody is going to give a scientific proof for. Nobody is going to give a rational set of beliefs that are compelling as to why a person believes it. There's an ultimate mystery here. But it doesn't mean that we just, as it were, sort of leave it without thinking about it, without engaging in tough kinds of, 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 of um, wrestling with how could this thing be? Um, is this a completely incoherent uh, notion or, or whatever? Much the same way as I think that authority has been enormously eroded in our world. But once you say that, people think that you want to bring back capital punishment or something like that. So th there are a set of words of this sort that I think are really important but have to be used with a lot of care. So, yeah, I'm completely agreeing with you. But I think I've got to pin it on all these other things. This is what I don't mean by them. Michael. David, thank you for what you've shared this evening. It's, uh, it's been very interesting and stimulating. Thank you. Uh, two, two thoughts that I had, and maybe just following up on a more recent discussion. Mm -hmm. uh, in a legal sense, uh, truth in our courts yeah. is determined either by a balance of probabilities mm -hmm. uh, or what's the other one? Reasonable, beyond reasonable doubt. Yes. And I was interested in the context of of the Christian faith, there are, there are aspects of the Christian faith, like the resurrection, mm -hmm. which can be argued using the laws of evidence. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, that's just a side comment in terms of uh, something that we might give some thought to. Philip Mateer, QC, stood where you were yeah. one night, using the laws of evidence, uh, which are used in the courts, to mm -hmm. explain the truth of the resurrection. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think uh, we do think of the Christian faith as a mystery, but there are aspects of it uh, which may think we may apply truth in that context, in the legal context, uh, which may be worth thinking about. Uh, but as you were talking this evening, uh, I've, I've been, over the last couple of years, uh, stimulated by uh, some writings of Hermann Duyveert, mm -hmm. who was a legal philosopher, um, and he looked at uh, any issues like truth Mm -hmm. uh, from 15 different aspects, and I was interested, rather than going into all 15, but the four points that you raised this, this evening mm -hmm. are four of those 15 points that mm -hmm. he would raise well, in terms must of be aspects. Right so you're, you're on, a good, on a good journey. And maybe just as a, as a word of encouragement, um, I practice as a chartered accountant, uh, advising small and medium-sized businesses, and you were saying, how can we be incarnational? How can mm -hmm. we be doing how can we connect this into, into what we're trying to do on a day-to-day -day basis? And over the last couple of years, uh, I've been working with small and medium-sized businesses in Belfast, trying to apply those 15 aspects of, of truth, the, the knowledge aspects, the ethical aspects, the mm -hmm. incarnational aspects, and it's, it's been a really stimulating exercise. Mm -hmm. um, so I commend what you've been doing this evening. Thank you for sharing it, and maybe at some stage uh, we could look at some of those do you Verdian yeah. aspects as well. Well, thanks, uh, Michael, for it's really, really more. A couple of comments. Um, let me just say uh, one about each of them. Um, uh, yes, I mean, beyond reasonable doubt and, and uh, so on, what passes as truth in a, in a court of law? Um, of course, this is, um, this is uh, a critical element in what a Christian conception of, of truth would be, be beyond reasonable doubt and the like. Um, but, but I also think that somehow even those are sort of at the base level, that a Christian conception of truth is, is more all-embracing, much, much more so, and um, particularly thinking about something 
When the truth is beautiful, then it really is God's truth. And I, I just want to get to that, that, that element of it because beauty is no, no place in a court of law. The beauty of a theory is not going to make any difference in a court of law. Um, but, but the beauty of a truth is going to make a big difference in a church um, or amongst a Christian community. So, yeah, I'm sure that the, the, the tools of um, legal methodology have some insights and in, in, in value. Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd welcome them. Hermann Doyevierd. Well, you're reading a lot of uh, tough stuff, I have to tell you, uh, for sure. Um, Doyevierd was a, um, a, a Dutch um, theologian. I, I've, I have a few reservations about, about his um, uh, abstruse way of writing. Would that be a fair way to, fair, fair way to put it? Um, but I did learn a lot from that um, myself Dutch, Dutch tradition. Um, and one of them is that one ought to begin every concept with Christ as the foundation, not as the conclusion. So you don't start thinking about truth primarily as a scientist or a lawyer or an accountant or a teacher or whatever. You start primarily thinking about truth as a Christian and then you say, how would this affect how I do my work in any of these, uh, these contexts and so on? Which is why I'm very unhappy about having the truth of Christ as the conclusion of an argument. I think the Bible is working the other way and I'm pretty sure... Uh, and his, his followers would agree with me on that one. So Pilate asked Jesus, mm-hmm. are you a king then? Mm-hmm. Jesus answered, you say I am a king. I was born and came into the world for this one purpose, to speak about truth. Whoever belongs to the truth, the truth listens to me. And then all the best questions are the shortest three words Peter asked, what is truth? Would you care to comment on that little piece of scripture? Sure. John 14, the context that Francis read, I said that was in the upper room. And I'm not 100% sure, but maybe somebody can check. The tail end of John 13, it's Peter who's lipping off, isn't it? Uh, Peter is saying at the end of that... um, passage, uh, I'll follow you even to death. Someone check that. Am I right about that? You read that out. No, that's not the bit about truth. No, I know that. Oh yes, yeah, sorry. Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth. Before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. That was truth for Peter. Peter's claiming that what he'll do, he's claiming, I suppose, a bit of truth for himself. I lay down my life for you. He asked the question, but Jesus gives him the answer. The answer is, you'll not lay down your life for me. And neither did he. And then a few verses later, where the, unfortunately the chapter division comes in in the narrative of the story in the upper room, then the context is that Jesus is answering the question and saying that, that he is the truth. The pilot story is interesting. And, I mean, isn't there another section where he said, what, or another person says, what is truth? And I think here, these, these show kind of the difference between Jesus' answers um, about truth in his person, but they're asking about truth as a conceptual thing. What is truth? Um, what would proof be? What would um, inference be? What would logic be? And so on. And Jesus is not, is not answering at that level. He's talking about that truth is himself. 
They're making what you might call a category mistake. They're thinking of truth as a set of propositions, but he's thinking of truth as his incarnated self. A category mistake is when you compare two things that really shouldn't be compared at all. Somebody put it this way. It's a category mistake to say, my ethics, what did Deagleton put it away, my, my ethics are located close to my left armpit. That would feel wrong. It's an incoherent comparison. Jesus thinks of truth as an incarnated thing, a being thing. I think these questions, he's exposing the superficiality of the questions. First stab, give me a week on it, Stanley, and I'll come up with a couple more points. Paul. David, I'm not really sure what my question is, but... Um, All the better. <laughs> I want to think, or maybe you'd unpack a little bit more about this idea of truth and beauty. Oh, yeah. And I'm thinking as well about the exclusive claim that Jesus makes and mm-hmm. the narrowness that you hinted at in your talk. Mm-hmm. And when I listen to people of other faith, um, mm-hmm. for example, thought for the day, very often on the way to work in the mornings, you know you get a sense of the the beauty that others have. For example, you know, Jonathan Sachs Mm -hmm. speaking about his own faith in this sense of beauty, which is sincere and true to him. Mm -hmm. What are we to make of that as Christians? Does that beauty reflect a truth? Um, How are we to communicate this truth that we have, which we believe is exclusive? Or I'm not really sure what my question is, but how how do we communicate faith in this multi-faith world? We're very often actually those who believe in a God seem to be our allies in an increasingly secular society as well? Yeah. Well, I have a really clear answer to that. I mean, in one sense, my answer is really simple. I don't know. I think it's a really complex, complex question. I am inclined to think that when you see the beauty of truth in another life, you're seeing God's presence. I really fundamentally believe that. Um, when you see a truth that's ugly, I don't think you're seeing God's truth there. Um, you're seeing a truth, all right, I'm sure, but I don't think it's truth in the sense of the full or beauty of truth that I really think is found in the Christian, Christian tradition. I'm going to part company with Jonathan Sachs somewhere, uh, but um, I think there are many ways in which I'm going to be on a path with him, and um, I'm happy to be on a path with him. I mean, I'm happy to be on a path with anyone who is... Um, working to, um, to, to transform this world and so on. But there is a point that's going to come uh, where we are going to diverge, and I'm going to graciously describe where I div- diverge, and I'm going to pray that um, in that divergence that other person will see something of what I really believe is the truth from my point of view. But I'm not going to be able by an argument to persuade Jonathan Sachs that yet this week anyway that uh, the Messiah really has come. But I am certainly going to say there's a beauty in a lot of the things that he said. That really doesn't help you at all. But at least they kept talking. Thank goodness. I'm sure you'll find times to follow that up with you over the next 20 or 30 years. But um, thank you very much. Round of applause, I think.